Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Today on the show, we're going to talk to Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro. Rosa DeLauro, she is, well, first of all, a very long-serving uh, congressperson and now the author of The Least Among Us, Waging the Battle for the Vulnerable. This is going to be a full show conversation. Towards the end of the show, in the third and final segment, I'll invite you to call in at 860-275-7266. But remember that number because we're not going to do that just quite yet. And in fact, before I bring Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro aboard here, let's hear her in action. Uh, let me set this up a little bit. This is uh, an appropriations subcommittee hearing in May. Uh, and the person appearing before the subcommittee is uh, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Um, and she is talking about the Trump administration's uh, proposed budget cuts. Oh, you're not going to really hear Betsy DeVos talk about them. You're going to hear our guest Rosa DeLauro talk about them. So here we go. This is a budget, and I characterized it, Mr. Chairman, in the Ag Appropriations Committee this morning. It is cruel, it is humane, uh, inhumane, and it is heartless. A $9.2 billion cut to education. And the fact of the matter is, is that when my colleague talked about there's 10%, there's less money going uh, to high poverty areas. The teachers are more likely to be novices in these places. Those underserved areas are going to be uh, uh, hurt. We're none of us in here going to be hurt. We're going to be fine. Our kids and our grandkids are going to be okay. But millions of kids around this country are going to suffer what has been done with a $9.2 billion cut to our education programs, which is supposed to serve our youngsters, make sure they have a good future and a bright future. And I'm going to fight this budget, Mr. Chairman, with every fiber of my body because it is wrong to do this to our kids. All right. That clip was viewed, one version of it was viewed 47 million times on social media, uh, and it was up a lot of other places. We'll never know how many people have laid eyes and ears on that clip. But um, Rosa DeLauro, the fact that you would have 47 million people uh, watching even one version of that clip probably means it's something that people at some level wanted or needed to hear somebody like you saying. So uh, tell me what you think about that. What, what was so important? or what was so appealing to people? Well, first of all, it was staggering to me that that number of people um, listened, viewed, viewed, viewed the clip. I had sat for two hours in a hearing where the uh, Secretary of Education, uh, with a broad smile on her face, uh, talked about how education is the key to the future, how we need to do uh, career uh, and technical education for people, and uh, and and discussed uh, uh, issues uh, and and 
really funding education at a level that they were not speaking of, where they were going to cut $9.2 billion, where they are proposing to cut $9.2 billion from our education program, which, which I said, really, uh, whether it's, it's, it's Pell Grants or whether it's early childhood education or uh, career to uh, uh, job education, it's, it's uh, uh, technical education, all cut back. You cannot be serious about the job that you are doing and the mission of this agency if you are prepared to make that level of cuts. That's what was going through my mind. And, and as I sat there and listened to her, quite frankly, um, I couldn't deal with it any longer. And uh, the chairman, as, as the ranking member or the senior Democrat on that committee, the chairman often gives me an opportunity to close up, uh, and he has the final word. But um, I, I, I thought I would tell it like it really is and what's happening, because I think the people of this country need to know um, that uh, one of the most significant uh, uh, agencies uh, in the federal government, which is to provide opportunity for education, which we understand is the great equalizer, is going to be decimated, and their kids are at risk, and the country needs to know this. And, and this, in, in a way, ties into the title of the book, The Least Among Us, uh, which is, you know, I mean, it has a kind of New Testament uh, quality to it, that you're making an argument here. I, I think one of the things that people may have liked here is the fact that you say, look, my kids aren't going to be hit by this, neither are my grandkids, and neither are yours. You know, it's a whole group of other people who aren't as well represented here. That seemed to be very much the fulcrum of the last national election we had, right? There were a lot of people who felt left behind. They were trying to figure out who was going to do something real and significant and substantial about how left behind they were. And, and so say a little bit more about what your vision is of that. Uh, really, and, and that really is about the purpose of the book. I think there's one line in the book that I uh, uh, use, Colin, that says, you know, oftentimes the people uh, uh, who we provide a social safety net for, um, they're viewed as alien populations, but they are us. They are us. And uh, we need to have, which is what the social safety net has been, um, uh, for 40 years in this country, and crafted, by the way, by Democrats and Republicans, to provide an opportunity for people in times of need. It is a reflection of our values. It is a shared responsibility. It's an accountability for others, again, particularly in times of need. And it's also about not punishing children who happen to be born into a poor household. Uh, and, and so we, we have, over the years... Uh, crafted uh, a social safety net that addresses issues. Uh, and that happened up until Newt Gingrich, when Newt Gingrich began the unraveling of the social safety net, followed by the Tea Party, and now what is a massive assault on it by Donald Trump and by Paul Ryan. Um, and th that's what, what the point is. The, the point that I was making as well, you know, I was taught in, in, in my home that we do have a responsibility to one another. Um, and that is what is at the core of this um, uh, book, and it's what is at the core of what I was saying to Betsy DeVos. If we can't be thinking about those who are not us, but who are in a different set of circumstances, and that government needs to work for them, 
And again, those are the lessons that I learned at my kitchen table from from my folks. As you know, my folks served in public life in the city of New Haven. They served on the city council. And what they taught me is that government can work for people. Its goal is to provide opportunity. And that's the power that we have at the federal level. You know, you you just mentioned Paul Ryan. One of the interesting things, uh, there are a lot of interesting sort of personal things in this book. Uh, The book tells you uh, a lot about how things, well, you know, it tells you a lot about how sausage is made. There's not much about legislation. The book is mainly about how to make sausage, but there's some very good recipes in it. Uh, There's a whole chapter, I think it's called Paul Ryan's Attack on the Poor or something like that. But very early in that chapter, you say that you like Paul Ryan, that he's basically a very nice person. I think he's helped one of your grandchildren maybe with the report she was doing. And I mean, you mentioned some other things too. I look at Paul Ryan as this person who basically wants to take away my Medicare. So I don't think he's a very nice person. So, but well, explain that. I, well, yes, I, absolutely. I, you know, he is a very, very nice person. And he had my, my granddaughter Rigby interview him, you know, about, uh, uh, you know, about statehood for D.C. And it turns out that he's somebody who believes in statehood for Washington, D.C. In, in, in any case, it is about his philosophy, not his personality. He has a Wonderful personality, and um, and I do tell there's some vignettes there uh, when he, you know, took on the job as speaker and dealing with the appropriations process, and he said I didn't realize how difficult it was, and I said to him, "Welcome to the NFL." Mm-hmm. You know, it was it's tough, but his thinking that is what uh, uh, is, is 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 so troublesome. And in the book, and, and I will just quote Ryan's thinking about poverty: if you can only make receiving government aid onerous enough and humiliating enough, then people will opt out voluntarily and redouble their efforts to avoid hunger, illness, or being laid off. And as I I just say, that is a slap in the face to the millions who do everything right and still cannot get by a betrayal of a legacy of good government in the United States. So it is his philosophy about the role of government. And when he talks about people who are out of jobs and who need to have unemployment benefits, he talks about them, you know, uh, that we are, what we are doing is providing a hammock for them, that they are lazy and that they do not want to work. And that's wrong. That um, is not, that's wrong. Right now, there's a, a huge test going on of these clashing value systems. Uh, I, a test that it would appear that the Democrats could very easily win as the second iteration of this national health care, the repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act comes forward. Um, it, it, it seems brutal and, and unfair uh, and uh, a transfer of wealth once again to some of the richest Americans uh, as a way of allowing them to abdicate any need to, to fund health care for, for the rest of Americans. It, it seems as though you know, right now is a moment where it would be hard to conceal the kind of differences that you talk about, the kind of differences that somehow or other don't really necessarily penetrate uh, every election uh, all around the United States. But as you see this, as you see this Senate bill rolling out right now, I mean, what do you see? If, I guess specifically I want to know, do you actually think Mitch McConnell wants to pass this thing? It just seems like a poison pill. 
Well, there's there's two schools of thought with regard to Mitch McConnell that he um, uh, that he wants to pass it and get it over with and move on to tax reform. That he doesn't want it, uh, to, uh, you know, to pass, and still then he's done with it and he can move on uh, to uh, where they really want to go is to tax reform. On the other hand, it is the repeal of the tax bill that allows them to do what they want to do with regard to tax reform, and that's to provide. Of the, uh, the 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 wealthiest folks in the nation with a massive, uh, with a with a massive tax cut. But let me just get back to, uh, because it it is about what 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 the book is about, um, and you, you take uh, first of all, you know when the when we went from rhetoric to reality, and the Affordable Care uh, Act, we found that people were getting health insurance for the very first time. Mm-hmm. If they had a pre-existing condition, they now could get covered, and it was affordable, and they could take advantage of it. Again, you, you, you know the particulars. Their kids mm-hmm. could be on their insurance until age 26. The whole litany of benefits from an Affordable Care Act. Um, so that we now see that there is much more of a sense of not wanting to repeal the Affordable Care Act, but in fact, make changes, uh, d- deal with what the consequences are. So when you take a look at just, just a couple of pieces, 22 million people will lose their health insurance, 15 million next year. What do they do? What happens to that social safety net? Healthcare is a safety net. You look at the top end of the uh, of, of of the age groups when you look at the massive cut to Medicaid, and Medicaid is shared between state and uh, and and federal government. You're looking at older Americans uh, who are going to be kicked out of nursing homes. I'm not making that mm-hmm. up. Yep. And where are they going to go? They're either going to my mother, my my uncle, my aunt, my grandmother, so forth. They're going to have to come back home with me, or there is no place for them to go. But what I want to get to as well is at the other end of the scale, what is going to happen to children and children with disabilities? They are going to be... It, it, it really is almost criminal to think about what will happen to these children. You know, a week ago, Colin, and, and I, will, I will mention this, I did a, an event in, in the district at the Hill Central uh, School in New Haven, and Dawn Johnson, who was there, a, a mother who has a disabled child, and just very, very quickly, she said his catheter uh, has to be re- replaced every four hours, uh, he has a tube that needs to be irrigated every night to evacuate his bowels. He's fed through a gastrointestinal tube. She said her one partner through all of this has been Medicaid. Medicaid basically co-parented my son. And what she is hoping and what she says in her final remark, and these, these are her quotes, she said, Disabled children didn't ask to be in that position, nor do their families. I was not expecting a rocket scientist. I just wanted a happy, safe, and healthy, strong, uh, happy, young, healthy young man. Medicaid, I thank you, and I hope and pray that Congress will do the right thing. 
Well, let's talk I don't about, make yeah. that up. Yeah. I don't make that up, Colin. That is that is not just this one mother uh, in New Haven, Connecticut. This are families all over the country. So I do view what they want to do is, again, it's the same, the application to the, the education budget. It is cruel and it is inhumane. All right. So, and by the way, I totally agree. And anecdotally, it's true. Statistically, it's true. There was a very similar call on Tom Ashbrook's show on Point yesterday from a woman in Texas who had almost a, an identical situation with a, a child who needed Medicaid basically to stay alive. And polls indicate the recipients like Medicaid better than they like private coverage, the, uh, even with you know the problems sometimes with doctors who won't take Medicaid because the program provides them with better financial protection. There's so, There has been some stability to it. So we know that. And we know that the expansion of Medicaid under the ACA has been uh, a success. I th- would you concede that what has not been a success prior to Trump, prior to this new period, what was not a success was probably more the middle class version of this. Uh, the premiums were high. The deductibles were high. Both of those, the premiums and the ductu- deductibles, got higher in the second year. So for maybe an independent person, you know, somebody who's a, a self-employed person or somebody who's trying to buy health insurance through one of the exchanges, it got harder. Some of the private companies kind of deserted their posts, said, this is too hard. We can't do it. We're not going to be part of this exchange. I mean, it needed a fix. The problem was that it was already a pretty conservative program. I mean, some of the ideas of it came out of the Heritage Foundation. It needed effectively a fix on the left. It needed either a public option to compete with the privates or go all the way to single payer. Is this the time, given what a disaster, what a crater the Republican bill is that, you know, people like you can say, you know, it just can't be done this way. At minimum, there's got to be a public option. Well, let me just say this, just a, a, a couple of things. One, some of these uh, issues face middle-class families like that we, we have spoken about. But, but before there was a Republican proposal, uh, you, I don't know, you may not have heard me say this, but I've said in my own uh, leadership meetings, I've said in my own caucus that there were problems, uh, serious problems with the Affordable Care Act. At any transformational system, uh, there were problems with Social Security, which we've changed. There have been problems with Medicare, which we've changed along the way. Uh, And yes, there were problems and some unintended consequences, but some things we were not able to get when we passed the Affordable Care Act. And you've mentioned increased premiums, increased deductibles. We fought for a public option. We couldn't get it. Let's move to a public option and doing that. Let's look at the cost of prescription drugs. How do we bring those costs down? And there are a number of ways, and I have legislation to deal with that as well. I was for lowering the Medicare uh, age from 65 to 55 to let people buy in. These are serious fixes. I was also concerned, and I said so in my district, about the consolidation. There are so many small doctor's practices that are being swallowed up by hospitals that what we what we watch is that increases the cost of health care. I believe that what we need to do is to fix those uh, issues and to gather people uh, who are smart and who know what you know what are the directions we should try to go in and to get there. It's not about repealing it, but I have been outspoken 
about what I view are serious problems with the Affordable Care Act, and I want to find the ways in which we can address it without repealing uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act. That is not the fix. Sounds good to me. Um, so whenever you, I hear you get excited like this, and you're getting excited right now, as you do, I do. I'm aware of the uh, passage in the book where you say, uh, you know, that you warn uh, new employees that you tend to swear a lot. I, now, I says, I compete with Rahm Emanuel on the use of the F word. He trails me because I'm older than he is. Uh, you could say that I swear because I care or because I am passionate about good policy, or because a colorful vocabulary helps one command attention in a town that's still getting used to strong women. So I just be cognizant of our FCC license. Uh, and, yeah, uh, but no, I'm not going there. I'm not, I, I have pretty much control over what, yeah. uh, what, what I do. Uh, uh, that's gratifying to hear. Well, let me, just, let me just ask you, okay, I'm going to have you tell a story that's in the book, and then I'm going to a- ask you a little bit about it. So there's a... Um, uh, a nice anecdote in the book, uh, I, I think it actually is uh, in the middle of the sausage making of the Affordable Care Act, I could be wrong about that, where Nancy Pelosi um, says to Henry Waxman and some uh, some other people too, uh, I think she says something like, honey, uh, the girls have to have a meeting, uh, something along those lines. Uh, and the girls need to huddle, that's what it is. Uh, the so, girls need to huddle. So tell the story of, honey, the girls need to huddle. What was that day and what happened? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act was hanging by a thread uh, in, those last, uh, in those last several days. And I also tell the story in the, in the book, and this was, a very, this was painful for me, Colin, um, because I am, a, I am a Catholic. And I watched the, the, the Catholic bishops at that time um, really spread what was misinformation about the um, about the legislation, and it's um, uh, opening the door up to uh, you know to to, to abortion. Uh, that was not the case, and we we fought back. On the one hand, we had um, the White House that um, was had said to uh, uh, the speaker, uh, "Why don't we separate the?" pieces of this bill and take them one at a time and therefore not have to deal um, with this uh, with, with the issue of contraception or with abortion. And uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi said no. She said we were going to deal with it as one piece of legislation. And essentially because of the overwhelming benefits, and benefits quite frankly uh, t- uh, to, uh, to women. In the midst of all of that, um, we had legislation that was put forward by a, a, a good colleague of mine, Bart Stupak, um, that would in essence have um, just disallowed insurance, um, the insurance carriers to, uh, to uh, talk about, uh, to provide services to women who would like to avail themselves of, of his services in their insurance policy. Um, so we were... Um, debating whether or not uh, this this amendment, his amendment, what was going to happen uh, with it. And um, in that um, um, meeting, it was a leadership meeting, um, there were uh, several of the women who were there in addition to some of the other leader, uh, leaders. And um, uh, first of all, that, that Henry Waxman and Henry and I uh, uh, had an exchange and 
uh, given, as you pointed out before, I get passionate about issues. And I love Henry Waxman. I think he's a superb legislator. Uh, and um, uh, he said, don't get so emotional. Well, it was an emotional issue. Uh, but that's always what they say to women, don't get so emotional. Um, uh, but then the view was that let's not take up the issue of choice uh, for women. And, um, uh, you know, we said no there. But then the, 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 the speaker said, um, I think what we need to do is um, uh, the, the women need to, uh, to huddle and to talk about this issue. Uh, Congressman Waxman wanted to attend that meeting, and she said, no, I'm sorry. Uh, this is going to be uh, the girls have to, have to huddle around this. Uh, and we did, and we came back, and it was a resounding no. We were going to go forward with an Affordable Care Act that uh, really took into consideration all of the health issues uh, that women face. And that was one of the strengths of the Affordable Care Act in that it had, uh, uh, for the first time, uh, put women's health on a level, quite frankly, with, with, uh, with men's health, um, and that women were no longer going to be charged 48% more for their health care, that they were going to have access uh, to, uh, to contraceptives, they were going to have mammograms and pap smears without any uh, co-pays. So it was the strength of the health benefits uh, for women and the preventive care uh, for women that was uppermost uh, in, uh, in, in our minds and wanting to pass an affordable uh, care uh, a bill that had so many advantages for everyone in, it, uh, in the United States, men, women, and children. But it was a very interesting moment um, uh, when... Uh, yeah, and it's, when, a, it's a very interesting moment, and it says a lot about Nancy Pelosi and about your relationship with Nancy Pelosi and the respect you obviously have for her. But there has been a conversation over the last two years about Nancy Pelosi's continued speakership. Tim Ryan, another guy you like and respect, you've got stories about him in this book, too. Tim Ryan has mounted a challenge, and there's just this question. Congressional Democrats have really lost a lot. They had wave elections that went against them in 2010 and 2014, gained back only small numbers in 12 and 16, gone 0 for 4 in these uh, this latest round of special elections. There's a question right now is, is the message right? Are the messengers the right messengers? What's your take on all that? Well, first of all, Nancy Pelosi has been you an know, extraordinary leader. I mentioned the Affordable Care uh, Act. Right now, she is, uh, you, you know, to unify the Democratic caucus on, on um, uh, you know, uh, in opposition to a repeal and in opposition to the president's budget. But let, let, let's talk about Democrats and Democrats nationwide. It's, this is my, my view. I think that um, uh, Democrats have got to connect with working America, and that's across the country. That's not just in the heartland or in the Rust Belt. Uh, there is the single biggest economic problem we face today, Colin, is that uh, people are in jobs that don't pay them enough to live on. They are struggling. They cannot uh, get their kids to school. Even if you have a very bright child, you have parents talking to this child with tears in their eyes saying, I'm sorry, we can't. We can't provide you with the resources to get you the best of, of, of an education. These are folks who don't take a vacation. Uh, they are afraid to retire. And in some families, it is even means uh, means being able to put food 
on, on the table. And those are the areas in which a social safety net can be enormously helpful, as they have uh, in, in, in the past. Uh, but in this context, uh, this is something that the, 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 the Democrats, um, what, what, there has to be an, an understanding of the lives that people are leading today and how economically insecure uh, they are. And again, in my view, and I've said this publicly, I've said it in, uh, to, to my colleagues, Democrats have got to listen to understand what, uh, what is going on in people's lives. Accompanying this issue of economic insecurity in many parts of the country. We are looking at marriages dissolving over economic issues, kids who are opioid addicted, adults in the same case. The fabric of lives are, 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 are fragile. And this is something I believe uh, that Democrats have to understand, not for an, an election, honestly, and I mean this, it's because we do have the power at the federal level to help to make a difference in people's lives. That is an important distinction. Hey, we've got to take a quick, quick break here. I'll get in loads of trouble. Rosa DeLauro is with us. She's with us the whole way. Her book uh, is The Least Among Us. We'll be back with more. Um, we are back with Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro. Her book is The Least Among Us, Waging the Battle for the Vulnerable. She's joining us from studios, I believe, in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, as we wound up the previous segment, uh, Congresswoman, you were saying that some things, some things you do, you do because they're right, not just so you'll win elections. But, of course, it's easier to do things that are right when you hold a majority, as I think you're more keenly aware than I am. Uh, and so you do want to win elections. Um, you have a unique perspective. You've got 26 years in the saddle there in Congress. You're also married to one of the preeminent Democratic pollsters and researchers uh, in modern American history, Stanley Greenberg. He keeps looking at this. I know he's gone back to Macomb County in Michigan, which he has this kind of famous relationship with studying it. And I think one of the things that he's finding is kind of what you're saying, that in, in some ways, those people who have been so hard to woo and so hard to hold, maybe some of those voters who voted for Obama in one or two cycles, but then migrated to Trump, they're interested, actually, in a lot of the stuff that's in your book, right? They want the government to help them. They, they, they want a kind of populist philosophy to to prevail in American government. But they've also got all these grievances, right? And they, they feel like it's not fair and other people are getting stuff that they're not getting. Uh, it, it's That's one of the, the sour notes that got exploited by the other side on the last election. So, so how do you deal with that problem? Well, you, you know, I think above all what they are uh, what what they feel. Um, there's a great book by a woman whose name is Arlie Hochschild, uh, who wrote the book about strangers in their own land. And she talked about some of the folks that you're speaking about, Colin, who feel that their economic and their, their, their social, their lives are uh, at risk and that um, they can't get a leg up. They can't do what they thought they would be able to do uh, as parents. Uh, they haven't succeeded in the way they may have thought 
that they should have. They probably still believed in an American dream uh, and that their kids would have a, a better uh, future than they did, the way probably your folks did and, and mine did, you know, and they worked so hard to make sure that I had a chance. But they feel invisible. They feel condescended on. They feel that they're not respected. And what I was saying is that that's what we have to understand. And that's what we have to try to respond to. Do you know 70% of the people in this country do not have a college education? Mm. So, you know, you take pride in your job. I take pride in my job. We are defined by the jobs that we have. That's what makes our kids look up to us, that we can do what we do. That's not happening for a lot of people. And what we have to do, and given the fact that they are jobs that don't pay them enough to live on, understanding that is directly related to public policy initiatives that address those issues. And I think if they felt that we were addressing those issues in some way, one, that we understand, and two, that we are looking for ways to be relevant in their lives. And quite frankly, they look at Democrats and they look at Republicans and they say a pox on both your houses because you are, we can't look to you for help. And what some of them did was they say, we got a guy here who's promising us everything. He's not going to make good on any of the promises, but let's take a chance. But I don't want to go there for the moment. What I, where I want to go is let's look at how, do we are, how are we dealing with jobs in a digital economy? How are we providing people with jobs and apprenticeships? How are we dealing with giving worker training? What are we doing for families that um, need to have one paid sick day off? And it's, it's probably... The, the percentage of people in, in, in who work in the private sector, it is, uh, you know, in the 40s uh, percentile that do not have not one single day off. What are we doing about family and medical leave? What are we doing about uh, uh, men and women in the same jobs getting the same pay? Can we make childcare more affordable for people today? Can we have kids going to school that are not dealing with massive amounts of debt when they, when they uh, come out? What are we doing to incentivize uh, businesses uh, and education to come together to design a curriculum that provides people with a job at the end of, of the line? Uh, what we are doing, those, that's what we can do. That's mm. what the federal government can do. Um, and those are the directions we should going. And it's not a question of whether they, what, what they're, they're looking for a lifeline. And in the past, in the past, Colin, and I, that's why I tell the stories in this book, Democrats and Republicans came together to say we have a problem in this country. We may have different approaches, but we've got to address it. We've done it with food stamps. We've done it with child tax credits. We have done it with unemployment insurance. Uh, we have done it with minimum wage. We have, and, and one of the stories I tell in, in this book, which is a big part of what the last election was all about, which was trade and trade agreements, where 
People have lost their jobs, wages de de decreased, because some would want to say it's because we live in a global economy with a new technology, and it's Joe Stieglitz, the, uh, 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 po uh, the uh, economic laureate, mm -hmm. Nobel laureate, who says it's jobs and wages. It's not about globalization and technology. It's about the public policy choices that we make. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, before we run out of time here, we're going to also maybe take a few calls in the final segment here. You know, you alluded to this in the first segment, but I, I want to focus just for a minute or two on this. One of the big surprises for me in this book was the amount of time you spend as a devout, a devout Catholic butting heads with the Catholic hierarchy. Hierarchy. This These stories populate more than one chapter of this book. There's a story about you calling Timothy Cardinal Dolan up, uh, about the, the Paul Ryan budget and the economic injustice therein, and being basically told, well, get on the same page with us on reproductive issues, and then maybe we'll give you a little help uh, on, on social justice. You guys go back and forth on that one. You don't get any movement out of them. And then there's this astonishing story we were talking about it before we went on the air of UB. Uh, the whole delegation comes up here to meet with the leadership of the Catholic Church under our then Archbishop Henry Mansell up here in Hartford. And then you're kind of asked to stay after. <laughs> Explain why it was that you were asked to stay after. Well, let, let me, if I can, and I know we want to go to the segment with folks, let's give you a, a, a context. I am so often asked by the press, Congresswoman Delora, what, what motivates you? What, what gets your juices flowing about what issues you take on and that you champion? What are the ways, uh, why do you vote the way you do? What are the interests? And, you know, it's, it's not, Colin, for me the 26 years that I've been blessed to serve in the House of Representatives. It's not the 26 years, but it is of growing up in an Italian Catholic household. Um, and because that is where I learned the values of that we are accountable for one another, that we have a shared responsibility, a moral responsibility for other people. And as I said in the first segment, that's what I learned at our kitchen table. When my parents made it possible for people to navigate through the system, they didn't write an omnibus health bill or so forth, but they ministered uh, to their community. That's what I learned. I took those lessons uh, to the Congress uh, uh, with me and found that a social safety net was something that had been crafted by Democrats and Republicans to make sure that when people were in trouble, they had uh, they had something that they could uh, that they could turn to, um, and that faith. And I'll just tell you this: it was um, Monsignor Ryan who sat next to Franklin Roosevelt um, uh, when he signed Social Security, uh, and it it. it it was all of these efforts um, for, for, for me came out of Leo the Thirteenth and Rerum Navarum that says we have a responsibility to one another and we should have a system. He didn't call it Social Security. He said him that took care of people and we should take care of people when they are young and when and 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 when they are old. And that is a broad spectrum of in, of, of 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 issues. And for me, it is that broad spectrum of issues. Uh, my faith was never challenged, nor did I think I would go to Congress and have my faith challenged over one specific issue. Every single day, men and women in the United States Congress deal with issues that have to do with life in some way. Well, that you, is what, yeah. we're, what we're talking about now yeah. with health care. This is an issue of life. Mm. 
And the Affordable Care Act was all about that. And it was challenged. And it's about the issue, I will just say this, the issue of choice, the issue of, 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 of abortion, what the Catholic Church teaches, and at its core, it is you use your conscience. Pope Francis, just recently in Brazil, when they had the Zika cases, and there was concern about babies being born, uh, with, uh, with a, uh, you know, with a Zika virus, and he said, with the issue of contraception, and abortion, they should use their conscience mm. to make that determination. Well, of I, what I just they want to say do. this this thing in the book, although it's really not about the reproductive life issues. I mean, it's it's in there, and you really write a lot about this and talk a lot about this. But you're there, it's 2012, and, and you're there, among other things, to tell the Catholic Church that the Affordable Care Act is a very pro-life movement in the sense that it is going to save That's millions right. of lives. A lot of people who will otherwise get very sick and then die are, are not going to have that happen. But you're kept after it. I'll just read your own words to you. This is Archbishop Mansell. He proceeded to tell me I was married to a Jewish man who was divorced, and therefore, he asked, how could I still present myself for communion on Sundays? Uh, I told him I could I would continue to receive the sacraments and asked him a question. How could the church be so blind to the fact that health care reform could save millions of lives? That's an astonishing exchange. Uh, no wonder you use the F word all the time. You probably didn't there, but you probably did no. when you walked out. No, I I was, um, you, know, you know, I'll be, be very honest. I was First of all, um, and I actually said with regard to uh, to my marriage of 39 years, 39 years to Stan Greenberg, that um, that had that had never been said to me that my being married to someone who was Jewish, and I'm not divorced. My husband was divorced. And that I wasn't going down that road, that no one was going to take my church away from me. I grew up in an Italian Catholic household. My faith and my church are at my core. No one was going to take that away from me. And so it was disturbing to me as I left that meeting. But I was not going to back down, nor I was, going, was I going to back down in my exchange with Cardinal Dolan when I said to him, speak out on the budget. Mm -hmm. Speak out on the Ryan budget. Paul Ryan was not challenged on the Ryan budget except by Sister Simone Campbell and the nuns on the bus that went all over this country talking about that, what what that was going to do to families all over this country. The nuns always wind up doing the hard work. Hey, we've got to take another they quick do. break here, or we won't have any time for calls. Let's take that break. We'll be right back with Congresswoman Rosa Delora. Thank you. 
why is Colin not asking Rosa DeLauro about rumors that she dated one of the guys from the Israeli electronica band Infected Mushroom? Wait, no, I'm sorry, that was Tara Reid. As you were. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is passed out in the green room, and our intern is Tim Cohn. The part of Bill Curry was played by Evan McMullen. We'll be back tomorrow with a show about psychics, but maybe you already knew that. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're back with a little more. Rosa DeLauro, uh, the author of The Least Among Us, a congresswoman woman from the New Haven area for 26 years. Um, we'll have a little bit of time to ask questions. And so uh, uh, several people are basically asking the same uh, question. Stacy on Facebook is asking pretty much what I think Brian from East Hampton is about to ask you. Uh, so, Brian, go ahead and be succinct because time is short. Hi. Yes, so I'm from East Hampton, and I know you are just talking about healthcare and kind of the church and where that stands on that. I know one issue that's been problematic has been the mandate for the birth control. And so there's a bill currently, which is HR 676, which is the Medicare for all bill. And I'm wondering, I know a lot of Democrats, there's I think 113 co-sponsors of the bill right now. It was introduced by Representative Conyers. So just wanted to know to date, Representative, um, you haven't co-sponsored it yet. So just wanted to know what your thinking was behind that or what your reasoning was. Um, so, yeah, right. just wanted to ask that. Sure, sure. Ha happy to answer that. Um, uh, the, what my, my view at the moment is, and I'm very open, and I've, I've said this to looking at Medicare uh, uh, for, for all, uh, I'm looking right now is how we uh, uh, keep from uh, having Republicans uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act. As I explained on this show earlier, I think that there are uh, ways in which we need to fix the Affordable uh, Care Act. There are some serious problems. My focus now is to keep them from repealing it. Uh, very, very open to Medicare for All. I also said that when we were first deliberating uh, the Affordable Care Act, I wanted to move uh, uh, the uh, age from 65 to 55 on Medicare so that people could buy in. Uh, so I'm very, very open to that. I have haven't, uh, you're right, I haven't co-sponsored the bill yet, uh, but I'm looking at, at it and will continue to do that. But I view my job at the moment is to make sure I try to keep the Republicans from repealing the Affordable Care Act. Uh, our number, by the way, 860-275-7266. But you have to call quick, quick, quick. We're running out of time here. 860-275-7266. Here's Rose in, in Wallingford. Rose, talk to Rosa. Yes, hi, Congressman woman Deloro, I want Hi. to thank I want to thank you first of all for your tremendous years of service and your strong, steady, compassionate voice for those who don't have a voice. Um, what I want to ask you is here in Connecticut where we are like minded and we've been fortunate to have representation in Washington, um, who is on the right side of these issues, who's not for these inhumane, um, cruel policies that are coming down the pike. What can we do to have an impact? Because, you know, I've even tried to call some of the out-of-state representatives, and they have their lines blocked. They're not taking calls from people who are not their voters. But if you could tell us what we could do to support our people here in the efforts um, to thwart these, I have a very small family, but I have two people. I have an 87-year-old mother who gets uh, home care benefits that are provided through Medicaid, and I have a severely disabled grandnephew 
who also receives services, and I have an extremely small family. All right, so let's um, uh, let's make sure she has a little time to answer here because we're almost out of time on the show. Thank you so ahead, much, yeah. Rose. Thank you so much, Rose, and thank you so much for your kind words. I really appreciate it. Let me just tell you what you can do. I understand, but you are part of a networks. You are part of a church. I don't know what job you do. Um, but you are, you know, and you may know people who are outside of the state of Connecticut or others uh, uh, who are there. First of all, it's it's very very good for you to let us know in Connecticut uh, and me and other members uh, of your your concerns because we can talk about what our constituents are saying to us and we can do that on the floor of the House and on the floor of, of the Senate. But it is about getting to other uh, friends or uh, 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 churches, organizations, nonprofits. What, what what connections or networks that you have who are in some of these states where people are uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, you know not yet decided uh, and they need to be called or people need to go to visit them in their district offices to tell them how important uh, that the uh, 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 the Affordable Care Act is to them it shouldn't be repealed but it should be fixed um, you do have that opportunity I understand Connecticut we're uh, we're pretty much all in lockstep in, in uh, opposition to the repeal. But think about those organizations and others that you know who are outside of the state. Tell your story. Have them get to their folks. All right. Uh, I'm looking at a, a bulletin from the AP. The Senate uh, re- Republicans have delayed the health care bill vote by, until after July 4th. You probably already knew okay. that was going to happen, right? I, I haven't seen the alerts. You got it before I did. As I'm here in the studio talking talking to you. Uh, it, you know, as I say, you, 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 you never know, but they have pushed it off until July. So it's another deadline which gives us a little bit more time to say to Rose and to others out there is... Uh, Get to your friends in uh, uh, other states where people are on the fence and tell them that we should not repeal or uh, the Affordable Care Act and we should not be cutting Medicaid. We should not be throwing 22 million people off of their health care. Yeah, probably gives them a little time to go to their home districts and try to figure out whether they could possibly win a 2018 election. Uh, you got that one right. <laughs> okay. You got that one right, Colin. So, Rosa DeLauro. It Nothing been... focuses the mind like a death sentence. <laughs> exactly. Rosa DeLauro. <laughs> Uh, great to talk to you after all these years, 26 years in Congress, and now the author of The Least Among Us, Waging the Battle for the Vulnerable. Thanks for taking the time to talk to Connecticut today. Well, thank you, and thank you for taking the time to read the book. Love you. Ciao. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.